Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night show. We're back in Brooklyn, New York. Baruch Hashem. We're going to another Enakul, Meshit Tzvi HaKoyen. And there's a good friend of mine, Arik Raskin, said today to me, I told him the baby's name is Meshit Tzvi. He says, Gematria Bliyai and Hara. I would take it, it works. He's very good at Gematrias. And even if it doesn't work, it's a beautiful thing to say. Bliyayin Hara. Baruch Hashem, we were benched with this child. Another, we had another grandchild and another schus, my father's name, Olav Shalom. She is Lila Nishmas, Eliza Shalamis. She looked after her husband and children. Shalom B'Shalva. This week, Shabbos, Parshas, Shemais, we start the new book, we embark on the book of Exodus. We begin the new book of Shemais. The book of Geula. Although in English they call it Exodus, it refers to the Exodus, but obviously Exodus only because we have a Geula to it. We wouldn't refer to it otherwise. As someone wants to say, <coughs> the reason for Gitten being before Kedushan is because this Kedushan would be too harsh to learn without knowing there was a Gitten option. So, Baruch Hashem, the fool comes before the Makkah. It's a horrific joke. Um, we're in the middle of the month of Teves. Generally, the month of Tevis, on the second half of the month, people do not make weddings. Unfortunately, in today's situation, today's matzav of the Shidduch crisis, they don't make weddings in the first half of Tevis either. Um, we hope and pray for all those singles that need Shidduchim. Hashem send them very, very quickly their Besherta, and that when they saw Parov Rishitsu Yirbu Vyatru made made, as it says in this week's Pasha, they should multiply so that we should be able to continue our generations. Shidduchim are very, very important. <coughs> Shidduchim are very important. Unfortunately, the, as we said last week, the twist of the nose destroys the Shidduch. We need to see that people speak positively about others, one another, so that people should be able to help one another with the Shaduchim of children, so that people can marry to see children married and grandchildren. Um, actually, from this week's Parsha, we see the tremendous concern that affected Meshe Rabbeinu himself. We know the story of Meshe Rabbeinu seeing that a Mitzri, an Egyptian master, was beating a Jew mercilessly and using the pronunciation of God's name, he sought to dispose of this Egyptian. Then the story goes on of a Yitzhabayim Masheni, We'll go into exactly what this was all about, how he tells the fellow, why did you hit your fellow Jew? And he did not hit him yet. He was talking in the future tense. All he did was raise his hand, and we're going to discuss this, God willing, in the course of this year. More importantly, the man turns to Moshe and says to him, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? To which Moshe says, Indeed the matter has become known. We know the redemption of Egypt was the time that the Jewish people, the nation, the birth of the Jewish nation, B'nai Yisrael were chosen by God to become his nation. Not something we earned, not something that the Jewish nation did 
and on that merit they became God's nation, but rather God chose them. And the long stay in Egypt actually demeaned them. It brought them down. It had them dealing, serving idolatry. It was, it was horrific what was going on with them. And the true selection that Hashem chooses them, He would not have chosen such a nation on a basis of such merit. However, Hashem has chosen this nation, and He became that we became Bnei Yisrael. We became His nation, and therefore, on no more merit than the fact that we were Jewish, that God's people. Well, we were redeemed. But, Moshe discovered a horrific story here. He uncovered something terrible. There's a tale bearer, there's a Baal Lashon Hara. People talking Lashon Hara. He became shocked, alarmed. Since this is so, Moshe got very concerned and worried. Maybe the Jews don't deserve to be redeemed, Chas What was this tremendous concern of Lashon Hara? We know, we know that they say Lashon Hara kills three people. person that says, the person that listens, the person that's spoken about. Yes, we know. We heard, we, we, we are given lessons of Lashon Hara. Chavetz Chaim has many svarim on it. There are courses today about Lashon Hara, how the severity of Lashon Hara, and how people need to watch themselves over Lashon Hara. Granted, Altus Feinweil. What was Moshe so concerned? The Jews were sinning, they were dirty, they were dealing, they were serving idols. His concern was Lashon Hara, Really? Moshe knew that the Geula, the whole redemption, was contingent on God choosing this unit called Bnei Yisrael. This nation had an entity which ex- existed because it was a group. It was an entire unit of one. Lashon Hara is unique. It's different than any other sin. Besides that it causes tension between people, talking about another person, something that happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I'd be that I could say something to make somebody feel bad, or to put someone down, It shows a lack of empathy toward another person. Even if the person didn't intend to do so, but the person, by talking something not positive, automatically causes tension, causes separation. Moshe feared that this very divisiveness that Lashon Hara could ruin the fabric of Bnei Yisrael. Destroy it as being a cohesive group, a cohesive nation. They didn't need schusim, they didn't need good deeds. They were chosen by God. But God chose a unit, which had unity, which was united, which was one. And by all of a sudden falling apart, By all of a sudden, talking Lashon Hara and becoming separate entities, and not only separate entities, but entities that want to hurt and do damage, to inflict on others, 
Moshe was very concerned that this was a downfall that would not be able to be repaired. So we see how important it is that we see and we talk about another person. We need to refrain from the slightest shemets of Lashon Hara. The slightest iota of Lashon Hara. If you, even, especially if you stand to gain and benefit nothing from it even. The only satisfaction that you're having is you're hurting somebody else. You're doing nothing else with this. This whole story, but what is the continuation of the post? Pari heard about this. Now, the first time he heard about this incident, he found out about this guy dying, he, this guy disappearing, he was up on his, his face, was on the post office, there was an amber alert, and they had no idea where he was, but now all of a sudden he found out where, what, what happened to him. He wanted to kill Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe ran for his life. The Tater's emphasis, Moshe was worried, even though the story did not reach Parai's ears yet, this shows us, the Tater hints to us, the extraordinary power of Bitochen, complete trust in God's goodness and grace. What is bitachon? What is actually believing? This this faith. The trust. It's more than recognition that God is going to orchestrate everything, that everything is going to work out the way God wants to be. Everything will fall into place in the last moment. And therefore, whatever happens is for the best, because this is what God wanted. Bitochen is downright bare knuckles. person has absolute confidence and relies that God will grant us goodness, the most obvious and simple sense of the word. And David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Lamed Beis Basikud. Rab Machiv Meroshev Abeiteach Bashem. Chesed Yesevivenu. Abeiteach Bashem. He who trusts in God, kindness will encompass him. Chesed Yesevivenu. Means, even if someone's not worthy of his own accord, Bitochen draws down this great kindness of, from God on those that trust in God. And this doesn't contradict the terrorist promises of reward and punishment. Rather, we believe that the merit of our own, when we have this Bitochen itself, makes us worthy of God's blessing. And therefore we have a genuine bitochen. That everything is in God's hands. Everything will turn out. Nothing is subject to material, to natural. Samuel Tzedek says, if you think positively, the future will be positive. Track good, so therefore the whole thing of Bitochen here is shows us that Taylor, the way Moshe says he's frightened even before Pari says anything. He tells us Moshe's fears. Taylor hints it's not Moshe's fear. The threat of his life would have been averted. If he wouldn't have feared 
and he would have had bitachin, nothing would have ever threatened him. The story is told of a relative of the Rebbe. Don't know how she was related to the Rebbe, but she was related enough. She had a, she had the Rebbe's home number. One day they diagnosed her with something in the hospital. And they recommended a very, very radical surgery. It was a quite a dire situation. So after hearing these prognoses and everything else, she got very frightened. She called the Rebetzin. She told the Rebetzin, please ask the Rebbe what to do. I want a bracha and advice. The Rebbe said, when the Rebbe get home, I'll discuss it with him. No. The Rebbe comes home, and the Rebbe mentions the story, and the Rebbe says she should absolutely not allow surgery. Surgery is out of the question. There's nothing to talk about. No surgery. Needless to say, She, uh, you know, the Rebbe said, the Rebbe said. She called the relative and told the Rebbe the story, told the story, and that's it. However, the next day, the doctors came back and said, are you crazy, no surgery? It's not possible. You will not survive without the surgery. And she felt herself getting weaker and weaker, and she was weaning. She was really getting falling into despair. The doctors were pounding away the surgery was necessary, but she didn't know what to do. So again, she called the Rebetzin very, very urgently. Doctors are driving me crazy. And they said that refusal surgery is, is, is like suicide. And I feel I'm getting very, very weak. And they're the experts, not me. Not I don't know. You know, I don't want to say anything else. Please ask the Rebbe again. She said, "I'll try." And lo and behold, when the Rebbe came home, the first thing he asked the Rebbe "How is she doing?" And she told the Rebbe the story. The Rebbe said, "No." I said, "No surgery." They should look throughout the hospital for another doctor that will do it and that will treat her and that will help her without the surgery. No, the family hears this and they went crazy. They started looking through the hospital up and down the halls and they found a doctor that said, I... Let me see her. It's not my jurisdiction, it's not my ward, but I'll go and see her. After examined her, he said, listen, I can give her an injection. A certain drug, which might work, might not work. If it works... And you want me to treat her, she has to move over to my ward. I can't have her here. And they said, no problem. And he gave her the injection. And an hour later, you could see visible improvement. <coughs> they moved her to the other department, the other ward. And a few, whatever, weeks later, the woman was totally cured. And the first thing she did when she get home, got home, she calls the Rebbetson to thank the Rebbe. Rabbi Groner was in the house at the time, apparently. And heard the conversation. The Rebbe said, I saw that if she made that operation, she wouldn't come off the table alive. Then the Rebbe hesitated for a few seconds and said, People have to understand that when we say something, they have to listen and obey, even if they don't understand. We meaning Rebbes. When the Rebbe says something, we need to obey, even if we don't understand. The Rebbe said this straightforward, and this is a very, very, very strong issue, and a very strong concern, that needs to be addressed, especially today in today's generation. We need to have the Amunas HaTzadikim.
the Kabbalah's ill of the Tzadik. And Divrei Tzadikim Chayom Vekhayom Lad. The words of the Tzadikim are everlasting. And therefore we need to look into what the Rebbe requests of us, what the Rebbe wants from us. And we need to follow the directives. Which way these glasses go? They might sit better this way. And we actually find just that in this week's Pasha. Melech Mitzrayim says to them, this is in the end of the Parsha, chapter 5, verse 4, The king of Egypt says to them, Why, Meshach and Aaron, do you disturb the people of their work? Go to your own labor. We know Shehud Levi did not work. What labor was he referring to? The Farshim say, Pari instructed Mesha and Aaron to go back to their own labor, meaning that the labor was different than the rest of the nation. The Ramban explains, Pari recognized that the nation needed to have teachers needed to have leaders, spiritual leaders, and said Shevet Levi would not go into work. Okay. They would not have slave labor. They had to sit and learn. So he told Meshinaran, be happy, you're not getting beaten as slaves. And you're free to study and teach. Don't overstep your boundaries. Don't meddle. Don't interfere the lives of the rest of the nation. Because the Maradin practice. Tachlusye. Hashem wants them to be slaves. I'm not doing this on my own. This is what Hashem wants them to be. Hashem wants them to be slaves. So what are you mixing in? What's Mishzichta? Meshe and Aaron ignored Pari's warnings. It's not enough for us to be free. Not enough, even if you're allowing us to sit and teach Taylor. They campaigned and fought for the freedom of the entire nation. In spite of the fact that they were not exactly court's favorites by trying to do this, run this campaign in this battle, but still in all, they needed to fight, and they did. They saved the Jews in the nick of time. The Arizal says, Arizal Achai, if the Jews remained in Egypt one more moment, they would not have been able to be redeemed. Their spiritual level was so low, they had sunk to such a low level, that they were holding one more moment, they would have gone to the 50th level, and they would not have been able to be redeemed. What do we learn from this? We see that a person needs to concern himself not only with his own Torah, his own mitzvahs, his own four cubits. That's Pari's attitude. We must trust that a Jew's future is not bound by natural and logical possibilities. Who am I? What can I what can how am I gonna impress somebody else? What am I gonna do? How am I gonna have impact on somebody else's life? Eh. But this is how a Jew needs to live. They need to devotedly <coughs> 
seek out on a constant basis a fellow Jew. If you know Aleph and Bez, and he only knows Aleph, teach him the Bez. Every man, every woman needs to reach out to their brothers and to their sisters. No matter what their state is in, you have to make it your business that you draw them to serve God. And that's where the lives ultimately can be saved. And it's never too early to start. Or never too late. This is a devotion, a dedication that the Rebbe campaigns and the Rebbe lives for and strives with reaching out to the fellow Jew and seeing to it that they're doing the right thing. We talk about Bitochen. We talk about Hashkacha Pratis. Not my style, but I got today a message on WhatsApp. A story apparently told by Shlema Kalbach. I didn't hear it from him and I didn't see this thing actually happen. But the story is a very, very powerful story and very, very possible to have happened. Very likely. Shlema tells a story of he was on a plane and he saw a stewardess on the plane davening from a siddha. I don't think it was a Jew, it was an LL flight or Tower Air or any one of those other airlines that once existed, Israeli flights. It was an oddity, therefore, to see a stewardess davening from a siddha. When she finished, he got up and he went over to her and he said, excuse me, um, I noticed you were using this uh, book, this prayer book. You actually know how to read from it? You actually... And she said, uh, (coughs) I um, studied by an Orthodox rabbi and ultimately I was Megayer and yes, I am Jewish, and therefore I daven every day. Well, at that point, somebody called the stewardess for service, so she had to walk away. And he went back to the seat. A while later, the stewardess comes over to him and says to him, I need, Are you a rabbi? And he says, Yes, I am. She says, perhaps you could help me. She says, I was dating a boy. A Jewish boy. And we're very close and we really want to marry. We want to live and spend the rest of our lives together. She says, no. You need somebody to make the wedding? I only take an hour for a chuppah. No, that's not what his question was. (coughs) He realize he needs to keep listening. And she continues and she says that the issue is that his parents are ballistically against marrying a girl that was not Jewish when she was born. I don't know exactly what their problem is, but they don't want to hear from it. And we want to get married. We love each other. So if Shleiman said, you know what? Give me his parents' number. And give me your number. And we land. I'll call them and I'll call you. I'll let you know what happened. Well, they landed. They got to the destination. Parted ways. When Shleiman was able to, he called the parents of the boy. 
the father was ballistic on him. And the father said, I'm a Holocaust survivor. And I don't believe in anything anymore after that. I don't believe in God, I don't practice mitzvahs, nothing. However, I would never, ever (coughs) allow my child to marry a non-Jew, or an offspring of non-Jews. And even, let us say, you want to tell me she's converted and everything else, I cannot have, after what we went through with the non-Jews, I cannot have it happen. I can't. Okay, I hear you. I hear you, loud and clear. It's not what terror dictates. But you're not interested in what terror dictates. So there's nothing I can do, obviously. And he took to take the initiative and he calls the girl. And the girl was not home, but the father answered the phone. He tells the girl's father the story. That I'm sure you're aware that your daughter is going out with a boy and to, to, they love each other. However, there's this problem. The man says to him, Listen, Rabbi, i got to tell you the truth. I'm also a Holocaust survivor, and so is my wife. But when we survived, married, we said, we're not going to have anything to do with God whatsoever. Other it's the opposite, we're going to go to the extreme, we're going to become devout Catholics. We don't have anything to do with religion or God anymore. One of the sons. Here our daughter found the spark, as we say, and she was Megaya, but she didn't have to because we're Jewish, really. So he says to them, maybe we can set up a meeting between you, you two and the other parents. He said, okay, and he calls back the other parents, and lo and behold, sets up a meeting in his hotel suite. In comes the first. What was that first? In comes the other one, and he sees him, and he looks at him, and he looks, and he says, "Hashel." And the other one looks back at him, and looks back at him, and says, "Shlema." This is This is you. Ah, they fall on each other's shoulders. They cry and cry and cry. What an emotional sight this must have been. But, they then turn to Reb And they tell him their story. We were chavrusas in yeshiva. We study partners in yeshiva before the war. The war broke out. As you know, everybody was sent to concentration camps. Unless you got lucky and they shot you on the spot. Otherwise people went to the concentration camps or put through hell. Hell would be light way of describing it. But before we parted ways, one day we promised each other, Hashem, we're going to grow up, we're going to get married, we're going to have children. We are going to do a shidduch. My child and his child are going to marry each other. This is before the war broke out even. <coughs> Here they are sitting facing each other. And their children are ready to marry each other. So we see that Bitochen is way stronger than anything that we could ever experience, anything that we could ever handle. But more importantly, is the study of the Teda. And the belief that Teda 
teaches us each and every lesson, each and every thing, and way of behavior, nuance, how we have to act and how we have to live. Moshe was persistent on his quest to not be subjected to leading the Jews out of Egypt, to not being the one that has to go and put up with Pare, etc. And he was adamant about it. And every time he kept telling the Abraham, go tell Aaron. Moshe had a speech defect because of when he was an infant, they wanted to see how smart he was. So in Pare's house, they took two bowls, a famous story. Medrash tells two bowls, one of golden coins and one of ambers, burning ambers, burning pieces of charcoal. And they stood in front of the child, the two bowls, and let's see which child, which the child takes. And Moshe realizing that the jewels were so much more expensive, he started to reach for the jewels. Says the Medrash, a malach came flying by, hit his hand and made him take coals, hot coals instead. He touched the hot coals, they were so hot, he immediately put his hand in his mouth. By placing his hand in his mouth, he burnt his tongue. He burnt his tongue to such an extent that he developed a speech defect from it. So Moshe pounds away at this thing and says, No, not me. Send Aaron, my brother. He's a much better orator, much smarter fellow. So let it again. And we see we get to the end of the Pasha, towards the end of the Pasha. Patek Dalit, Pasikov, chapter 4, verse 20. And finally, Vayikach, Moshe, as Ishtev, as Bonav, Yakiv, Moshe takes his wife and his sons and mounts them on the donkey. Let us go through a little bit of the history here. What happened here ultimately? Moshe runs away from Parai and Moshe marries the daughter of Yisrael. Ter tells us also the story of the shepherds and everything else. Now at this point in time, Moshe realized that he's not going to be able to deter God from making him the messenger to take the nation out of the land, out of exile. And therefore he keeps trying to dissuade God from putting him in this predicament. But now that everything is done and over with, and it's sealed, signed, and delivered, he takes his children and his wife, and he starts to travel on the donkey. Now everybody knows when you use the, it means somebody knows this donkey, He's a famous donkey. What was famous about this donkey? He didn't talk. Why does Terry refer to it as the donkey, the famous donkey? And Rashi tells the Mechomesh the Mikra, you know why that little hay is there? To say, Ha Chamer, the famous donkey, let me tell you. Because this was the donkey that Avraham used to go to the Akedah. When Avraham Avinu saddled up his donkey, as the Torah tells us, to go to take his son Yitzchak to the altar, who was the donkey? This was the donkey. What's burning, please? Then says Rashi. Mashiach himself will come riding on this donkey. Wow. First of all, that's quite a lifespan, lifespan for a donkey. And secondly, why all the translations? 
Why all the interpretations as to who this donkey was? The fact that Mesha got the donkey, that the donkey appeared so that he could take his family down to Mitzrayim, This is after seven days of arguing with Avishta and imploring God and saying how iron was better. Yep. Says the Avishta to Mesha. You know how you got this donkey? It wasn't because it was the only donkey that Avis or Hertz had left over. But I got to tell you that this is the special donkey that did the special deeds before and will do special deeds in the future. Because Moshe said, I am not going to take the Jews into Israel. He knew. He knew that in the end he's not going into it to sow. You have other messengers. Why me? So firstly the donkey is a lesson to Mesha telling him Avram Avinu had a good cause for the liberation. When Avram Avinu was told, take your son to the Akedah and slaughter your son, first reaction would be, ah, excuse me? I didn't hear you well. My son? The only son that I just got? Who you're promising me generations from? And now you're telling me I should kill him? Are you sure you're talking about him? Something, some kind of argument. But no. Avram gets up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, the donkey, and moves. Because out of love of God and the eagerness to obey His command, Avram did the saddling himself. He didn't even ask his servants. So the donkey had a message for for Moshe Rabbeinu here. Without talking. He says, remember how your forefather Avraham didn't falter, didn't think twice, didn't blink an eye when God commanded him to do something so much more severe than he's asking you. So too your enthusiasm has to pick up. And even if you think that Aaron is better than you, it's time that you emulate Avram. Don't hesitate. Do what you got to do. Finally, Moshe was shown that Mashiach's donkey, that Mashiach will speedily come today in this very Shnas Hakil. Mashiach is destined to appear on this donkey. Telling Moshe that their future redemption also depended on him. And it would simply be a continuation of the redemption process that Moshe Rabbeinu is starting. So although Moshe Rabbeinu, yes, is not finishing this, unfortunately would not be completing this, but Moshe Rabbeinu needed to know that it was a starting, he is starting the wheel to roll and therefore he is the one that should keep it going and keep the flame going. Similarly, the Abisha tells him when he says, what name should I tell the Jews who you are? Eyash, I am that I am. 
What is this all about? And God already identified himself as God. Why all of a sudden, Eyash In 1973, there was a Shabbos before Hanukkah. The Rebbe was fabricating for a group. For a group. The Rebbe was fabricating in Shul. A fabricating. Let us describe to you a little bit a fabricating. Without notes. Without a microphone on Shabbos, of course. The Rebbe sat in his holy place. Open the back door, you're choking us. The Rebbe sat in his holy place. He would come in. After davening, the Rebbe would go upstairs. Precisely 1.30, the Rebbe would come down. The Rebbe would go up to the platform, to his seat. The person that was standing next to the Rebbe would pour the Rebbe the cup of wine, the Becha. The Rebbe opened his Siddur as to say the Kiddush. The Rebbe recited the Kiddush. Then the Rebbe had a plate of cake in front of him. He would take a piece of cake out, put it on a napkin, and have a piece of the cake. Needless to say, it was awe-inspiring. Imagine and think and say to yourself, <laughs> "Is it ever okay? He was holy. Okay. Every movement, every nuance, every blink of an eye, every cough." of the Rebbe, was inspirational. Gave us keiches. Whether he waved his hand during a fabrengen, during an igen, whether he coughed. The way the Rebbe coughed, the royalty from the Rebbe was just indescribable. And there the Rebbe sat on his red chair in front of the entire audience. The Rebbe would motion with his head for a niggin to start. Usually the first niggin was the niggin that was made, composed for the Rebbe's capital. And the Rebbe would sometimes shake with his head to encourage the people to sing faster, louder, with more enthusiasm. Sometimes the Rebbe would actually clap Ultimately, you knew that the Rebbe was ready to settle down and start talking. The Rebbe sat in his seat, and you took, you looked at sometimes the better half of two, two and a half thousand people, and everyone heard the Rebbe talking. You needed to strain a little bit in some places, but you heard word for word what the Rebbe was saying. By this particular fabric in the Shabbos of Hanukkah in 1973, the Rebbe stopped and asked for somebody. He asked for Rabbi Glick from England. Where is Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Glick? From London. He asked once, asked twice. Now the truth is to be told, they could have looked from today till tomorrow. They weren't finding him in 770. Mm-hmm. He was not in 770. The A month later, this whole inquisitiveness of the Rebbe became clear. This Rabbi Glick was a Benini. 
He was such a pure man. Such a loving, loving man. And the Rebbe saw his qualities. He dealt in light bulbs. He was a very successful businessman, Baruch He dealt in light bulbs. And the Rebbe said to him, ten years prior to this story, the Rebbe asked him, what's a light bulb? The Rebbe told him, a light bulb cannot arbitrate amitzin to sun. A light bulb only works, you turn it on. You don't turn it on, it's, it's dim, it's nothing. Once you turn it on, the light spreads through, throughout. No. The Rebbe says, that's your job too. Illuminate. Illuminate Jews whenever possible. No. And that he did. Wherever he did business, he sought to it to reach out to a Jew to talk something about Yiddishkeit. No. So let us look at what this happened in this story. He had a, a journey. A journey that needed to take him to certain places, places, places in Spain. It was a three-day, excuse me, he had planned to go as follows, Barcelona, which was a lot of business deals there, then to Madrid, he had a business deal, then Lisbon, Portugal. All these places, he had meetings. But as he was in Barcelona, he receives a phone call. Not on the cell phone, obviously. Receives a phone call. One of the secretaries of the Rebbe. The Rebbe wants him to go to Majorca and, as the Rebbe used the expression with him, turn on the Jews there. No. Didn't sound very urgent. So I'm like, let's set out to go to the other part, places, to Barcelona, to... I'll go to Madrid, I'll go to to, uh, Portugal, to Lisbon, and then I can go. No, as they mentioned, as the Rebbe says, why don't they know they have to listen to me? So lo and behold, he gets to the airport to take his flight to Barcelona. From Barcelona to Madrid. On Thursday, and they find out that all flights to Madrid are cancelled. Cancelled? Meet the helm, dog? No. That must be the direct sign to go now to Majorca. Here, sorry, here and his wife travel to Majorca. And they arrive there on Thursday afternoon. No, it didn't take very long. And they get a phone call to Mallorca. They find themselves in a nice hotel. They get a phone call to Mallorca in Mallorca. What is it? Oh, first of all, I'm sorry. The flight was horrific. The flight had such turbulence and such a storm. It was so black outside. People, the men, grown men, were screaming, yelling, crying. Rabbi and Mrs. Glick sat there like cucumbers. And they said, the Rebbe wants us to get to Majorca. He doesn't want us to go in a box. The Rebbe wants to go to Majorca. We're going to go to Majorca. We're going to get to Majorca. He's going to aid safely. Hence, with the whole homotol outside, we're not concerned. And they sat there peeling apples. Not really. Cucumbers. The people, seeing the calmness on the Glick's faces, calmed down. 
It calmed them. It settled them. It gave them peace. The plane is like a like a toothpick in, a, in a, I don't know where. But they calmed and everybody else stayed calm. Ultimately, they land in Majorca. Stewards, the passengers, the pilots go over and they thank the Glicks. You gave us strength. You gave us the strength to survive this flight. No, they get to this hotel, a very, very nice hotel they get to in Mallorca. They find out the reason that Madrid was cancelled and closed was a small little issue. The Prime Minister of Spain was assassinated by a terrorist bomb. It's a small little issue because it was a terrorist bomb, so obviously the Prime Minister was now in small little pieces. Uh, That is disgusting. Anyway... As they get into the hotel, Rabbi Grono calls up and says, the Rebbe wrote a beautiful letter, an interesting general letter for the people, for Klal Yisrael. He wants it sent to all Chassidim. And he said that specifically Rabbi Glick should have a copy of them. And he should have the copy translated into Spanish. And he should see to it in the hotel to teach this, to see this letter, to read this letter over. No. There were no fax machines. It, when I tell you, when the labor going is telling Rabbi Glick, I have this letter from the Rebbe, and you need to take it and to translate it, it means that Rabbi Groner is going to now dictate to you the entire letter. You write it all down, and then go find a translator, Brechkop. To Spanish, no more, no less. Obviously, he's not doubting the Rebbe another second. And he sits and takes the dictate of the letter. He goes and finds middle of the night a translator, and it's translated. No. It's translated. He has it printed up, copies are made. And now he's in a dilemma. <laughs> How am I going to get up in the hotel and tell them i got to read you the letter, letter from the Rebbe? It's a long, drawn-out religious thing from some rabbi in New York. But he's a chassid. Chassid, he is a kabbal, kabbal the sale. And everything was all prepared. And he comes in the meal, after the meal, in the hotel dining room. And he found out a lot of the guests were Jewish. There were a lot of Jews there. This was not a simple thing. And so he gets up and he says, Rabbi Isai, and a lot of the people were on that flight. And they saw him get up, they all started to look at him in reverence. They knew how holy he was. That he sat with such Kabbalah sail without flight, not even blinking an eye. And therefore, he says, Yabesai, the Lubavitch Rebbe sent a letter. It's in Spanish, I have copies, would like to do it with you. And everybody was very enthusiastic. And the Jews all took the letter, they sat down, and they spent a few hours going through the letter. This Shabbos, even the strangest of things happened, but the hachlotas that came out of the Shabbos were just incredible. People that had nothing to do with Yiddishkeit, very, very wealthy people, the wealthiest guy was a, was a Apikadis. And he too said, I will stop putting on tefillin every day. The inspirations that came out from this. A few weeks later, Rabbi Glick and his wife received a very long thank you letter from the Rebbe. For doing his beckon. Then Rabbi Chavikov calls Rabbi Glick and tells Rabbi Glick 
the story. By Fabrengen, the Rebbe asked for him continuously. Zakhtar Baglik, I understand. Nasrabakhalikov says, now I understand why. When the Rebbe was looking for you, he knew where you were. He was looking to give you kaychis. He was looking to give you strength to be able to accomplish everything you need to accomplish the Shabbos in Mallorca. So let us spend this Shabbos in Yerushalayim, Irakedish, and the Goyot Tzedek Yerlachen will come with Hachamer, with the donkey, and take us out of this Golos, and we will have Shabbat Shalom to all.